right, why don't you guys open up to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to, the first place we're going to look in is, is in Isaiah 9. Last week, we began an introduction to I, Isaiah, and uh, I'm very excited about this book. Isaiah is known as the uh, probably most prominent writing prophet. He is celebrated by the Hebrew people, and uh, so I'm excited to go through this book, but in order to understand this very mysterious and, and strong and heavy book, we have to first understand some themes. And so last week, we talked about the topic of justice, and we tied it into Freedom Sunday, and we were very excited for that. But one of the things that we found was that the reason Isaiah had been called on the scene was to speak to the Israelites and say, guys, you're supposed to be a people of justice. You're supposed to be a people that show my heart of justice, my desire for justice in the world. And the, the whole point of you being my people is that you example and model to the world what that justice is. You see, God's people are not just people that, yes, we get a free gift of salvation because we know Jesus. We know the true and living creator God. But we also are people that then have to respond to what he has done for us. And we go out to the world and we show, not just by our words, but by the love of our actions, who the God is that we serve. And so this week, we're going to talk about something similar to justice. It's another piece of who God is, what his character is, and what his people are to represent. And that is the topic, reconciliation. Now, that's a big word that means basically to bring back together, to make whole again. And so this is very, very important to the God of the Bible. And so whether you're a believer in Jesus today, and this is, this is old hat for you, you've come to another Sunday service like you do many times, uh, or if you're a person who maybe is wrestling with the idea of who God is, I want to give you an understanding of his character today. And so the end result of this book that we have in our hands, because uh, this book, we like to call it the story of God. And the end result of this story of God is that the world will be full of justice and peace one day. Now, if you're watching the news at all, does that sound like a good thing? Amen. Yeah. We all crave it. We desire it. There is so much brokenness and heartache in this world. And we desire for things to be brought back together instead of being ripped apart. And there are so many ways that things get ripped apart these days. And so God is a God of reconciliation, one that wants to bring us back together. And so when we look at scriptures like Isaiah 9, we see a glimpse of what that future hope will look like. Look at Isaiah 9, 6. You guys all know this. It's uh, usually spoken at Christmas time. Um, but honestly, this has no Christmas connotations. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that was given to Isaiah. Christmas had not even been invented yet, so to speak. Okay? In Isaiah 9, 6, it says this. This is a sign for the hope of the people. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I am not a very political guy, and so regardless of what's going on in the news, I'm not, I don't land on one side or the other. What I do land on is the fact that God wants reconciliation, and we don't have that in this world right now. And I'm so excited for this day when this comes, and this is the fullness of what God does. And the word here is peace, and that peace 
whether it be people that are uh, currently fighting or maybe just distanced from in one another. That word peace in the Hebrew is this. Go ahead and go to the next slide. It's the word shalom. Shalom, okay? Those little squiggly lines underneath it, those are the Hebrew characters. It's the word shalom. And our word peace is a great word, but it actually doesn't speak to the wholeness of what God wants to do in peace. See, we view peace as the absence of conflict, and that's a good thing, amen? Amen. Absence of conflict, where all people are treated equally, regardless of what they look like, where they come from. Equal justice, right? Shalom. It's what we all desire. But the absence of conflict is not the wholeness of this word. The wholeness of this word is, in fact, wholeness. It is what is broken is brought back together, and and not only brought back together with a giant crack in the middle, but brought back together in full wholeness. It's made new again. It comes from the Hebrew word, uh, root, go to the next one, shalom, okay? And shalom has this idea of never to be taken apart again. See, what's interesting about this word, and this makes sense to us as Christians, is it's similar to when you go and you buy something from someone. Once you put down the payment, it is yours. It is never to be taken away from you again. And this is the salvation promise of Jesus, that he has purchased us by his blood and that he has brought us to himself and reconciled us. Even though we were far from God, we were rebelling in our hearts and minds, he brought us to himself by the payment of his blood on the cross. And we are never to be taken back again. Now, this idea of reconciliation comes from this idea of shalom. And we can be assured that the God that we serve will bring the fullness of shalom to the world through his son, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. When he comes and rules and reigns on this earth, which, yes, we do believe in that, that he will come and he will physically rule and reign, he will bring shalom to the nations. That's what all of Isaiah shows the hope of. But in the meantime, we must realize that that's not just for some distant future. That in reality, God has started that kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom is here among you. It is initiated, it is started, but the wholeness, the fullness of it has not come. And so we as the people of God, we have to realize that even though the world around us does not operate in this idea of shalom and reconciliation, that there's complete chaos, that we are to step into the middle of that chaos and bring the example of shalom, of reconciliation. And this is hard to do. In the midst of chaos, it is hard to live in the spirit of shalom. So let's break that apart a little bit this morning. For those of you who've never attended mission before, I do kind of a mix. I like to preach, but I also like to teach you what the Bible says so that you can read it on your own. And one of the things we have to realize is this next point. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Write down the natural... Governing law of mankind is retaliation. The natural governing law of mankind is retaliation. This is what's natural to us. It's kind of like our neutral gear. Left to our own devices without the heart of God, the way we naturally go is always to retaliation. Now, you might say, what do you mean by retaliation, Hans? Well, you could substitute the phrase counterattack. Someone attacks me, I counterattack them. Retaliation. We know what this is. It's when someone hurts us or harms us in some way, we hurt back. You guys know I do a lot of counseling on the side, and one of the things that I always say is that hurting people are the ones that hurt. They're counterattacking everyone in order to preserve themselves. Now, this might be totally a proactive attack on someone verbally, physically. 
It definitely falls in line with that definition. But it could be even a passive attack. You guys ever heard of the phrase stonewalling? I've talked about this before. Those of you that are dating or married, you know exactly what this is. You're driving along as if everything's normal, and suddenly you say something, and you look over, and your spouse has done this away from you, right? That's stonewalling, okay? Or maybe it's the emotional stonewalling, that maybe you're looking directly at them, but inside you're thinking, I really don't like you right now, and yet you have the Christian pasted on grin. I think that this is one we're prone to as Christians. We're taught that we are to forgive and forget and shove everything under the rug, don't actually talk about anything that's hurtful or harmful, and we do that pasted on grin, and we show the world that Christians are pros, not at reconciliation, but at hypocrisy. That we actually live a lie while we say we speak the truth. We then go behind one another and we backbite and we try and bring that person down in everyone else's eyes so that we're not the only one that feels that way. And this is huge and prominent, not just in the world, but in the church. And we are to be different, but our innate gear is to go there. Where do we see this? Well, go with me to Genesis. You guys know I love to go back to the beginning of the story in order to help us define the full story. And in Genesis 4, Genesis 4, we've been covering this a lot in our um, project of Bible literacy for the young adults group, so you guys are probably tired of hearing this section, but we're going to go through it one more time. For the rest of you, it'll probably be a little bit new. In Genesis 4, 17, after the story of Adam and Eve, the sin in the garden, they have their first children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. There's the first murder in chapter 4. And then it moves on to start this discussion of the offspring of Cain, the offspring of the one who had committed murder. And in, order, in other words, uh, the unrighteous offspring. And he gives birth to someone who eventually gives birth to Lamech. Okay, you can see right there at the beginning of verse 19, his great-great-grandchild, Lamech. Okay, Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Then if you skip down to verse 23, there is this random poem uh, that is highlighted and brought out. Even in your Bible, it's probably surrounded by a little bit of space so you can see it. And it says this. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, right? You can just imagine him screaming this at them. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Does he sound like a a good guy here? I I said in young adults group the other night, uh, Lamech is the first lame-o right? Okay, this guy's not a nice guy. He's the first domestic abuser, the first domestic violence person in the Bible, okay? And so he yells at his two wives, and he says, uh, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech not only had created slavery in polygamy, treating his wives as objects to do his bidding, but he declares to them that he will govern not only his house, but his city based off of the law of revenge. I will one-up you. You hit me, you strike me, you wound me, I will kill you. Now, we love this in American culture. MMA fighting, right? Drone strikes. These are all things that we are big about. You wound us, we will destroy you. Now, you might say, Hans, you're getting political. No, I'm not. I'm reading the word. See, the word is not saying this is a good thing. In fact, it is preserving it and presenting it as absolutely the contrary to the heart of God. How do we know this? Look at verse 26. At this point in time, Lamech was a leader of people that were contrary to God. And the people of God, the offspring of Seth, verse 26, Seth, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. 
At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, in the English, we read that and we go, oh, that's so sweet that they're calling on the name of the Lord. No, they were crying out to God because they were in the midst of a violent, depraved world that was governed off of the law of revenge. This is terrible. The bloodshed, the violence, and the vengeance had gotten so bad that the offspring of Seth, the righteous lineage, began to cry out to God for help. They needed justice and reconciliation. And when I look at the world around us and I understand what's going on in the hearts of man, even in my own heart and individual relationships, the side of me that is not fighting against God cries out to him and says, Lord, we need your help. Also, look at how Lamech justifies himself. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, mine will be 77-fold. He takes this supposed word of God and he uses it for his own purposes. But if you go back just a little bit in the story to the story of Cain and Abel, look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Is this really what God said? Was he saying this in order to be vengeful and have revenge? No, look at verse 13. Cain, after he kills his brother and the Lord says, what have you done? You're going to be a fugitive now wandering on the earth. You're isolated because that's what sin always does. It isolates us. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In 4.14, he says, uh, behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face, God, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, you can hear almost a duplicitousness here. He's almost blaming God for his own sin, but at the same time, he's crying out for help. There's almost a slight bit of repentance here, but not fully. And so in verse 15, the Lord says to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now, you might say, See, there it is, vengeance. The God of the Christians is a God of vengeance. No, guys, he stated that to protect Cain. Even though Cain was a terrible. He was the worst human, literally, on the planet at this point, the first one to commit murder. God says, I am a God of protection, and I will protect you. I will take care of you. You've earned the natural consequences of isolation, but I will watch over you. And it says he puts a mark on him, not out of vengeance, but rather protection. And Lamech, to his own devices, takes this word of God that was meant for protection, twists it, and turns God and characterizes him into this God that is all about vengeance and destruction and retaliation. See, we do that. We take the Bible so often and we twist it to become justified in our actions and self-righteous when we retaliate. It's not okay for other people, but it is okay for ourselves. And again, you might say, Hans, you're getting political. I'm actually not talking about politics at all right now. I'm talking about our own selves individually. As people, we take the word and we say, God's on my side and not on the side of the other. It's interesting. Uh, I was driving in the car the other day, and I heard this uh, news story about uh, a film. So I haven't seen this film. I am not recommending it. Do not rush out of here and say, Hans said this is a great movie. Um, but many of you might recall the 1960s movie, The Magnificent Seven. It was a Western. Uh, they're now remaking it. Um, and uh, uh, again, not recommending it. I'm sure it's very bloody and violent. Um, but the reason I bring it up is this. I heard them quoting a trailer from the movie. And in that trailer, uh, there was a quote, and it captures this perverse notion we have of what justice is. And, and it shows the fact that we, we, uh, our neutral gear is retaliation. There's a scene where the widow whose husband was murdered is talking to the main character who's played by Denzel Washington. He's a bounty hunter in this position, and she says that these villains have murdered her husband. And the main character, Denzel Washington, responds with the question to her, 
so you seek revenge. And she responds, and it's this very poignant part of the movie. She says, I seek righteousness, but I'll take revenge. (laughs) Now, we laugh at that because we see the hypocrisy and almost the irony in that. But see, that is what we truly believe. We believe that at a certain point, revenge is justice. Revenge is the heart of God, and that's not true. My point is this, we've gotten so very confused on what justice, righteousness, and peace actually are that our worldview has taken us in a direction far from the God of the Bible and created a definition that is in and of itself contradictory. We believe it is justice to become vigilantes on our own authority, but this never works out well. Destruction always begets more destruction. And what God came to do was to step into this chaos and give us a different story, a different way out. Now, those of you that are Bible scholars and you know the Bible well, you're immediately going to say, wait a minute, Hans. What about all those places where God uses that word vengeance? And there are many of them where it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That is true. But guys, those of you that go to mission, always read in context. Do not ever take the words of God out of context because when he is stating that, he's saying, after I have given every opportunity in the narrative arc, the story of God, given every possible chance to every person, and they have full-on rebelled against me, then in order to be a just God, I have to practice justice. And at that point, vengeance will take place. And the vengeance he's speaking of is giving mankind the natural consequences of rebelling against God, to be distant from God. And so vengeance is not his first choice. It is his last choice. The good news of the Bible is that God is first and foremost a reconciler. He wants that none should perish, the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance means to turn away from the ways of the world, that idea of retaliation, and turn towards him turn towards his truth. And what he does is he speaks this through his people. We see this even in the story of Noah. Noah comes out of the ark after the big flood. You guys know the story, right? The big flood happens, and the boat goes around the ark, and Noah and his family come out. And God right there gives him some commands, similar commands to Adam. He says, go throughout all the earth and multiply. But he says, if anyone takes the blood of a man, I will require his blood of him. One for one. Now, you might say, Hans, that's terrible. That's vengeance. See, that's what we're talking about. But see, the idea is, is that this is actually a way to bring justice slowly but surely. And God is instituting this in his people because he wants them to be governed not by retaliation, but by a new law. You can write this down in your notes. God's people, the Israelites, were governed by the law of restitution. Restitution. So you got retaliation is our natural tendency. And God steps in the scene and says, wait a minute, guys, I'm actually going to have you be governed by something different. I'm going to have you governed by restitution. Now, this is not fullness of the heart of God. We'll show that in a minute. This is a step in the right direction because God knows us. He created us. He can't just flip the switch. And so what he says is, is I want you to be governed by restitution. And guys, To us, we think, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very good, blood for blood. That doesn't sound right. That actually sounds like vengeance. But in the world of that day, where everything was governed by bloodshed, God stepping in and giving this law was just enough that it was drastically different. And so when the Israelites came along and he started to give them a book full of law, known as Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He started to tell them specifically, you need to be different from the people who operate in the way of retaliation. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus, a little bit to the right, and go to Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, and look at verse 19. Leviticus 24.19 is one example of this. If anyone injures his neighbor, okay, this is God delivering his law to the people, telling them how to act in the midst of people that are very different from them, to show them an example of how different our God is from the gods that we come up with in our own minds. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. In Latin, this is known as lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. Aha! See, Hans, you just said retaliation again. This is about retaliation. No, guys, think about it. Into a world that was governed by, you take my eye, I take both of yours. You take my eye, I cut off your head. You take my eye, I kill you and your family. Into a world that was governed by that kind of bloodshed, God came and said, whoa, guys, we got to maintain justice, but let's do equal justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. See, this was God stepping into the scene and saying, wait a minute, I don't operate off of retaliation. I operate off of at least equal justice. Now, We have twisted this in our society and made the God of the Old Testament into this vengeful God. He said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Good thing we don't follow that Old Testament God. No, guys, the Old Testament God is the New Testament God. Slowly bringing his people along to a point where we realize that without him, without his true whole heart, we are broken evil people. We devour and bite at one another. Isolating this verse on its own, I can understand the view of retaliation. But when you look at the whole story, the whole story of God, we see that the law of restitution was to restore that which was taken, in a sense. At the very least, it was the beginning of the attempt to undo the damage and bring true justice. But see, again, the good news of the Bible is we don't isolate one scripture. We look at the whole story. And for God, it doesn't stop there. God not only wants to equal things out and equal justice, he also wants to restore and make whole. And that's why as you continue on through the Bible, the Lord, Jesus Christ, comes on the scene and he is able to speak to us. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, what I do, how I live, how I speak, it is the Lord God, Adonai, Yahweh. It is the God that created us. And so we look at Jesus to see the wholeness of God's plan, the fullness of his heart. And he says things like, all the law of God hangs on two commandments. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this might seem new, but see, guys, this is the same God of the Old Testament. Turn to Leviticus 19. Go back just a couple of pages in your Bible and look at Leviticus 19.17. 
This is right smack dab in the middle of the place that the world likes to make fun of and say, see, this Old Testament God, he's vengeful, retaliatory. Look at what it says. Man, this is, this is an amazing, amazing verse for what's going on in our country right now. We've got people hating each other, killing each other, doing all sorts of craziness. In verse 17, it says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly, honestly, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he finishes with a statement, I am Adonai, the Lord. But the Hebrew here, for the Hebrews, they would never pronounce this name. They would say Adonai, Lord. The name here is Yahweh. I am that I am. I will always act out of my character. And his character is a God of reconciliation. And so when you do fast forward 1,500 years to Jesus, he says, love the Lord your God. Love one another as yourself. This is the whole command of God. The whole story of God is not just about restoration, but about reconciliation. Not just bringing back together, but making new, making whole in the love of God. Not only the love of God with his creation, but his creation loving one another. And so Jesus teaches his followers about this. Turn with me to, uh, to Matthew in the New Testament. Go all the way to the New Testament and look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18. God and his followers are governed by the law of reconciliation. God and his followers are governed by the law of reconciliation. So our innate gear as mankind is, what, what was it? Starts with an R, re, retaliation. retaliation. That is our innate gear as humanity. We will always desire to retaliate in order uh, to hurt back when we are hurt. But then God comes on the scene and says, no, guys, we've got to turn direction. We've got to start the process of repentance. And so I'm going to give you a law not of retaliation, but of restitution. So we start with retaliation. God turns us and starts the process, gives us restitution. And in the New Testament, in the fullness of his church, where his spirit dwells within his people, he says, not even restitution is enough. I want reconciliation. Isn't that cool? They are, they're all ours. I sound like a Baptist preacher with three points that all have the first letter, right? It's awesome, okay? Reconciliation. So how did God do this? Well, look at Matthew 18 and take a look at verse 21. And pay attention here. Remember, a lot of times in the New Testament, they're always referencing back to the knowledge they have of the Old Testament. Almost every Jew of Jesus' day would have had the first five books of the Bible close to memorized, if not fully memorized. Peter comes up to Jesus and says to him, okay, he's got a little bit of brown nosing going on here, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Right? And he's waiting for the big old pat on the back, Right? Jesus, aren't I great? Look at this, seven times. I am willing to forgive seven whole times. And see, in Hebrew numerology, this meant perfectly, right? Seven. Seven is perfect, God. Isn't that more than once, right? But seven. And God responds to him. Jesus responds to him and says to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but how many does it say there? 
For someone who has memorized, at the very least, Genesis 1 through 5, what is the story that pops to mind? Lamech, the first Lamo. You can remember it that way, okay? That's a, a gift from Hans today. Lamech the Lamo, all right? 77 times. Jesus, in this one statement, is reversing all of mankind's tendency to retaliate and saying, no, no, no. See, you as humans, you retaliate, but me, God, the Trinity, we reconcile. We do the work that is necessary in order to make whole again. And they use this word that in the English is rendered forgiveness. Now, there's a lot of pieces to this and detail to this, but the big thing I want you to take away from this is his followers are governed by reconciliation. Our goal as humans is always reconciliation. Now, the world is not going to think this way. And quite honestly, as a Christian who's been a Christian for many years, we as Christians honestly don't think this way often. But we are called to do this in every interaction we have. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And take a look at verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, honestly, it continues to be probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible because it deals with this topic of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Okay, not our dreams and desires, not our drive for the car, the house, or material things, or retirement, not our boss, not our spouse, not our children. The love, not only the love that Christ has for us, but that we have for him, it controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, our desire of retaliation is no longer good. Never was in the first place, but he's saying, if I've truly bought you and paid for you in your mind, then the love of Christ should compel you. And you should let that retaliation die and be reconciled. From now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. One of the tendencies in the church is to come up with our ministry, my ministry. I'm a good baker, so my ministry is to do baked goods. I'm a good, uh, gregarious person, so my ministry is greeting. Um, Ethan back there, his ministry is sound. My ministry is preaching. No, guys, our ministry is reconciliation. All the rest of it is just the method by which you go about reconciling the world to God and his creation to one another. Maybe you are a person who's a foster parent. And you are about the work of reconciling families and in those families, reconciling those people to Jesus. Maybe you are a plumber and you go into each and every home and you pray for that home and you talk to people in a way that shows them love and care. And maybe they never ask you about Jesus, but on the third or fourth time you go out to fix the pipes, whatever it is, they ask you, why are you so different? Why are you so kind? Oh, I'm about reconciliation because I have a God of reconciliation. 
Maybe it's in the cubicle. Maybe it's in the classroom. Maybe you're that student who goes into that classroom where you have a professor that tells you, I don't believe in God, and I don't like you because you do. And you don't retaliate. You don't fight back. You don't sue the school. You love them. You care for them in spite of how they act towards you. We are to be reconcilers no matter where we go. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. 24-7, 365, what is your ministry? Reconciliation. To show these little beings that they are reconciled to a loving Father. That even when we screw up as parents, they are reconciled to their God. And we go about the business not of saying, I'm the parent, you're the child, listen to what I have to say. But of constantly working in reconciliation with them. See, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, not with just our words, but our actions. Therefore, it says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Through us. Not just our words, but our lives. Are we reconcilers? And so we implore you. And notice he's saying this to the church. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, I'm a Christian, Hans. I'm saved. I I did the altar call. I got baptized. No, guys, he's saying that this is something we have to work on all the time. Reconciling to God when we've stepped away from him. Reconciling to one another when we've stepped away from one another. And then he finishes with this gospel statement. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then. See that partnership we talked about last week? See, God is not going to step into your classroom and show that he is the reconciler. He's going to use you to show that he's the reconciler. He partners with us by his spirit. See, in the midst of mankind's rebellion against God, he loved us so much. He loved us so much that he did not retaliate against us. I look at my life and I think of the many times I've rebelled against my God. And he was so justified to retaliate against me, to bring his hand down upon me, and yet he stood in a way that would bring me reconciliation rather than retaliation. And he did this through his son dying on the cross of Calvary. He paid the price for the debt that I had racked up by my sin and my rebellion against him and against his people. And he restored to us through that cross, a position of righteousness so that we could choose to be reconciled to God. The Bible says, uh, the the kids are even stating it in their class today, I know it well because I've been practicing it with my kids all week, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. Okay? I did my memory verse, yes. That is the whole point of the Bible, is that we are reconciled to the Father and he's presented us the free gift, but we must choose to reconcile with him. And this is the line. This is the line in the sand because so many people, many of you in this room maybe, maybe you, your past is, uh, you have a past of domestic violence. Maybe someone in this room has wronged you. And you say, Hans, am I supposed to become that doormat? Am I supposed to lay down and let them continue to harm me? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Reconciliation does not require you to be abused. Reconciliation 
is for you to stand in the strength of God to say, in order for our relationship to be reconciled, there must be boundaries and repentance, and there must be truth established. I have preached on reconciliation before, and I've had people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I, I, I'm feeling like I should go back to my husband who has beaten me for years. And I say, absolutely not. That's not reconciliation, that's abuse. Well, what should I do then? Tell him that if he wants to come talk to a six foot ten pastor, I'll get him to repent. Then he can love you, and then you can be standing there willing to reconcile. But see, reconciliation requires repentance. It requires turning from the brokenness to embrace the wholeness. And we are to be people that are governed by the law of reconciliation. So Hans, what's that mean? Well, let's unpack that for a few minutes. In the book of Isaiah, we will see that Isaiah is called by God in the midst of the kingdom of Judah because they were not bringing justice and reconciliation to the world. They brought shame and bloodshed and violence in the way they were interacting with one another. And so many of us are brought up in this idea in the church of what's called, uh, I like to call it, false peace. Someone harms us, we do the good old forgive and forget because that's what good Christians are supposed to do, and we move on. But all the while, we feel like the sinner underneath because we've got bitterness and hurt towards that person. They won't admit that they've done wrong. And so we put on the smile and we talk to them, but all the while, we're growing in distance from them because we truly have bitterness of heart towards them. And one day, it explodes and this is how church splits happen, this is why people leave church, is because there is no reconciliation. There is a false peace that happens. I do a lot of marriage counseling. I was actually in a marriage counseling uh, uh, class for 16 hours of the last 48. And it is amazing how much people are taught to just forgive and forget, shove it under the rug, just keep on going. But see, guys, that is not the way to witness reconciliation to the world. And so, let's go to Isaiah 59, and we'll see what it was Isaiah came and said. And we're going to see this theme throughout the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation the opposite of reconciliation, guys a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. This is speaking of lawsuits, okay? They're going to retaliation. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. And then it goes into some poetic language here, talking about how they want to bite and devour one another. They hatch adder's eggs they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. In other words, uh, the violence just continues. Their webs will not serve as clothing. In other words, there's nothing good that comes from it. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. 
We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. And on and on it goes. Because in the actions, and remember, he's saying us. These are the people of God. This is not them out there. This is not those sinners over there. This is us, he says. If we are not by our actions showing the heart of God, then we are the ones that are quick to shed violence and shed blood. So under the surface, we practice maybe a forgive and forget mentality, but under the surface, if we never work through to true reconciliation, there is bitterness growing, division increasing. We end up in isolation from one another, distance from one another, just like in the garden. Now, I love what's going on here today, and it's funny as I stand in the back, I watch all of us who are from Mission who usually meet at Straub, and it's awkward, right? New place, what do I do? Where do I look? Oh, they're clapping. I can't clap on rhythm normally. How do I do this, right? And so we're all silent and staring at the wall. And then all of you freshmen, right, you come in here and see us mission people think that this is your home, this is where you go, but you're freshmen, and so you're like, this is awkward, I'm the outsider. Hmm." And so all of us stand awkwardly and kind of go, everyone else feels at home but not me, and everyone else is thinking they must feel at home and not me. That's why we do a big barbecue, because we can all chew with our mouths closed, (laughs) right? Be nice to each other. But see, the reality is, is that all of us feel that way. We all feel isolated. We all feel broken. We need reconciliation, and we want it. And to date, in my experience, the church has failed at bringing reconciliation. Be honest with you here, okay? I've been a Christian for many years. And to date, I have encountered more harm and hurt from people in the church than from outside. You know why? Because I don't expect non-believers to reconcile. So I come to church, just like all of you, expecting to experience this amazing God of shalom. And because we are all so broken, it rarely happens. And so today, I want to encourage you that you have everything you need to be the people of a God of Shalom. You have the Word of God, you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, and I'm going to give you the one thing that you don't have, the knowledge that it's on you to cause reconciliation. Don't wait for the other person. See, our entire society in the United States is wait for the other person to bring the reconciliation. It's on you, the one who's been harmed. Turn with me to Matthew 18, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew 18, a very, very poignant verse here that sometimes we read very quickly and we miss. Matthew 18, verse 15. And if I had three more hours, I'd go in all of Matthew 18 and show you the context of how Jesus is trying to fight against retaliation. The whole chapter starts, basically, uh, with all the disciples going, who's better? Who's the coolest, right? Who's over everybody else? And Jesus is like, ugh, you guys aren't listening to me, right? And so then he goes on, he talks to him about what reconciliation is. And, and the start of reconciliation is this verse, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister, okay, the word there in the Greek is adelphoi, it means brother or sister, sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Who is it here? Is it the one who is the aggressor or the one who has been harmed that is the one that starts the reconciliation process? What's that? The one who's been harmed. Go and talk to them. If he listens to you, 
See, there's not a knowledge here that they will definitely reconcile. You have to be vulnerable. You have to take it upon yourself. You have to have the courage to go to that person that you know you have bitterness towards. And you say, you've harmed me, and I want to reconcile. If they listen to you, you have gained your brother. And what the rest of this section says is if they don't, then the church begs with them and pleads with them in order to bring reconciliation that they repent. But if they continue to say, no, I want to do my own thing, then they literally are asked to leave the family of God. You cannot be a Christian and not reconcile. You cannot be a Christian and not reconcile. Jesus' words, not mine. Trust me, if I were to make this up, I'd give myself a whole lot more leeway. So, what do we do to be reconciled? Let's go ahead and go to the next slide, and we're going to have to go through this. My clicker isn't working here, so we'll go through it one at a time. Go ahead and go to the first point. Just hit the right arrow until it shows up. There we go. Perfect. The first point is this. We all have to be people that are purposeful in reconciliation. In other words, we have to pray and have a purpose and a mindfulness that we are going to be governed by the Spirit and reconcile at every chance. In other words, we should be people that actually welcome conflict. I'm waiting for you to all laugh, okay? You're all writing notes. We should be people that welcome conflict. Oh, Hans, good Christians don't want conflict. No! In fact, I just went through 16 hours of training that said the key to a good marriage is not if you fight, it's how you fight. I can give you book after book after book that is proven with scientific truth that if you are a couple that never fights, there's probably problems in your marriage. And that you, if you are a couple that fights all the time and never reconciles, you're probably about one step away from divorce. But if you are a couple that finds disagreements occurring, oh, shocking, two human beings disagreeing, that's amazing. And then you reconcile, that will be a key sign to the fact that you can work through anything. My poor wife, I got home, you know, and she kind of looked at me tentatively, and I was like, you okay? And she's like, yeah, you just went through marriage counseling class. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, how are we? And I looked at her and I said, we're actually really good. I, I, I came out of the class realizing we were probably better than I thought going into the class because Kelly and I are different people. We have different goals, different dreams, different things that we find funny. We have, we have differences. And, and we've worked at, at slowly but surely reconciling in those things and allowing each other to be each other, not forcing one another to be one another. And so in reality, this idea is we actually are pleased. We're joy-filled when conflict comes. We're not going to run down the street, you know, doing a dance. Yes, conflict again! No. <laughs> but we're people that go, awesome, this is a chance to grow in intimacy with this person. I get to understand more about them, and I get to let them understand more about me. And at the end of this, we will be closer than when we started. To just shove things down, to not give them the chance to discuss and reason, is actually hate-filled towards them. It's stating, I want to know nothing more about you, and you need to know nothing more about me. I would rather maintain a false peace, my own comfort, than to love you well enough 
to go through this together and bring reconciliation. Secondly, let's go to the second point. When you are the wounded party, you need to go to the one that wounds you. Matthew 18 says this. If we are the one that's wounded, we need to take on the vulnerability of going and saying to them, you've wounded me. And guys, I've seen this a lot where people will go and do this and the response will be, I don't care, you're being sensitive. And that's hurtful. That, that hurts even more. It's almost like you're re-victimized. But quite often, in the body of Christ, I've never seen this outside the body of Christ, but in the body of Christ, that Spirit of God, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He keeps working on the person and eventually they go back and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I want to talk about this. For the person who's done the harm, go to the next point, you need to discuss what's going on. Listen to the brother or sister. Listen to their hurt. Have compassion on them. Don't defend yourselves. Let them speak. I've said this before. It's so funny. I see it uh, in myself and my wife and many of our friends, right? When conflict comes, the person will bring it up, and then you're waiting for their lips to stop moving so you can pounce, right? Yeah, but you, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's like ready. Yeah, but you. You know, it's like one word. There's no, no, no breath, no spaces. Yeah, but you, I want to defend myself. Don't do that. Just listen to them. Empathize with them. Next point, number four. Once you've heard from them what's happened and you've reasoned together to come to not one person's opinion or the other person's opinion, but the truth, the truth of what was said, the truth of what occurred, the truth of the person being hurt and their emotion, and the truth of your emotion, and maybe you don't completely agree, but you can at least agree that there was harm done, then what you need to do is you need to confess. Now, this is huge, guys. I just, we just started doing this with our kiddos, and it is amazing the shift in how they interact with one another and with us. We as Christians have got to get the phrase in the middle of conflict resolution, we've got to get the phrase, I'm sorry, please forgive me, out. Here's why. When you say to someone that you've harmed, oh, geez, I'm sorry that I just ran over your dog five times and killed it. I confess that to you. I'm sorry, please forgive me. What is that forcing the other person in our culture to do? They have to say what? I forgive you. Or else they become the rude one. That's how our culture is structured. And so true confession is not forcing them into giving you forgiveness. It's simply saying, I have sinned against you. Try letting that one land. It's awkward. <laughs> because both of you then are like, who, who says the sorry word? I mean, I've done this before. I, I've made a mistake with somebody. I go to them, I confess, and I want to say I'm sorry so bad. And then I hold it back. And we have to sit there with what? The weight of sin. And you know what that does to me if I'm the one that's harmed? I'm going to really rethink how quickly I sin against another person. Because now it's weighty. It can't be turned around in an instant. And if I'm the person that's been harmed, I understand and know that they know what occurred. And so you need to confess. And the person who's been harmed needs to help clarify the confession until the fullness of that confession is truth. Now, guys, realize that if you are an innately sensitive person and somebody can breathe wrongly in your presence, this is going to be a tough one for you. 
Realize that if there is nothing for the person to truly repent from, there is no need for confession. We have a rule in our house that we're starting to enact more and more is if you have nothing to repent from, don't say, I'm sorry. Those of us who are brought up in authoritarian homes, we say, I'm sorry, like handing out candy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so-. No. If there's nothing to confess, don't say you're sorry. And don't turn someone's personality into sin. I'm a quiet person. They're a loud person. They must be sinning when they're loud. I'm a loud person. They're a quiet person. They must be sinning when they're quiet. Don't take someone's humanity, their personality, and turn it into sin. If you do, then you're being too sensitive. And then also with this, don't lump the sin of someone else who's harmed you in with someone new simply because they're like that other person. Oh, this is a big one, and I am totally self-serving in this. If you ever, have ever been harmed by a pastor, but it wasn't me, I did not do it. If I've harmed you, come talk to me. I'm happy to confess. If someone else harmed you, go talk to them. We have to be careful. Sometimes if someone is similar to someone who's harmed us in the past, sometimes our parents, for example, we transfer into them and suddenly they become the sinner. If any of these things are occurring, then in the midst of the confession, you're going to realize, oh man, you actually have nothing to confess to me. And you need to turn uh, from what you're talking about. Number five, we need to work on restoring what was lost. Restoring what was lost. In the book of Leviticus, it talks about if you dig a pit and you don't cover it and somebody's ox falls in it, right? I hate it when that happens. (laughs) Then you have to pay for the ox, right? And the dead ox, you have to give back to them so that they can use it for meat. You got to restore what was taken. Now, this is easy if somebody dings your car door, you give them your insurance, your insurance pays for it. If you break something of theirs, you go buy a new one. With material things, it can be immediate. But if it is emotional... It's going to take time to restore what was lost. So, for example, if I do something that takes your trust away from me, part of the restoration process is giving time. Giving time. I'll give you an example, guys. I've seen this uh, more times than I care to count. Uh, The husband, both men and women struggle with pornography. But the husband usually is the one that comes in, the wife has caught, and, uh, caught him, and, and uh, the wife says, I can't believe that you broke the trust of our marriage, you've been looking at pornography, committing adultery with your mind. And uh, he comes in, he does everything that I've asked him to do, he starts to get accountability, starts to repent, starts to turn from it. And then about two weeks later, everything's great for like two weeks, and then like two weeks later, they come to us, to Kelly and I, and uh, they're just up in arms. And I say, what's going on? And the wife goes... He wants me to be okay as if everything's over. And the husband's like, well, yeah, I'm doing everything you asked. It's been two whole weeks. Now, why is this? Because men flip on a switch. Off and on. Off and on. Off and on. Okay? Women, you're not that way. It's just how we're built. And we know this, right? Okay? Just watch a guy watching a football game right? Yes! No! Yes! No! Right? I mean, it's like, are you, what are you, bipolar? Oh, I just scared a baby. <laughs> it's part of the reason we have kids ministry is not because we want them out of here. It's because I scare children. Um, right? It's almost like we're bipolar in our emotions as men, right? 
But ladies, you're like, yeah, they scored again. That's cool, right? Unless you're a Blazer fan, then you're just nuts, right? All the time, up and down. But see, we've got to be people that realize it's going to take time to restore emotional pain. It's going to be, take time to restore trust. I confess, by the way, I just sinned against your child, whoever that was. <laughs> okay, next point is this. Determine together what repentance looks like. Determine together what repentance looks like. In the church, very often, it's one person has the say of what repentance looks like, either the one that's been harmed or the one that is uh, um, uh, the harmer. But the reality is, is that you need to decide together. Why? Because the whole point is restoring the relationship. And if both parties aren't concerned in what reconciliation looks like, then you're not going to have reconciliation. One person's going to say, I did everything you wanted. And the other person's going to be like, no, you didn't. You never asked what I wanted. And so together you decide, what does repentance look like? What does it look like to rebuild that trust? And then once you've got this in place and you start to act it out, then you're in the place where you together in your relationship are in a place now where you uphold a mutual contract. You uphold a mutual contract of this. The person who did the, the, the harm is repenting. They've turned not only from the activity that caused the harm, but they've also turned from the value system that causes them to think it's okay. Let me give you guys a little bit of an example. I'm a loud guy. I can become passionate. And uh, a while back, um, I had a situation where many of you might remember it. I, I screamed from the, from the pulpit. And I had a number of people come up to me and say, no big deal, no big thing, right? And then I had another number of people come up to me and say, man, that really harmed me. And part of me was like, okay, I'm a loud guy, you know, and I know I'm six foot ten, right? So I'm, I'm kind of intimidating. But there was this line where, where I had crossed. And, and what would happen is these people were saying, I come from an abusive home. And when you raise your voice to that extent, maybe not loud, but to that extent, I immediately shut down. Now, part of me was like, oh, come on now. Well, that was sin. Because I was causing these people to be distanced from me, and I wasn't taking empathy at what was going on. And hopefully, if you've been going to mission, you've seen slowly but surely a change in the way that I minister and pastor. Because I'm realizing that people come from different situations, and if I stamp everyone with the same stamp and expect everyone to be the same, then I'm going to be the one that sins against them. We have to be in a place where we are called to repent, and that repentance needs to last. Then, on the flip side, the person who has been harmed, here's what they're required to do in this mutual contract. Remember the sin no more. Remember the sin no more. See, that's what a good reconciling relationship is, is the person who's, and both parties are going to have to do it on opposite sides at one time or another, but one party repents and one party remembers the sin no more. Now, what happens if the person who's repenting sins again in the exact same way, exact same context? God gives us permission to then remember the sin. You can see this in the next section that I'll have you read on your own, the rest of chapter 18. This man goes to his boss. He says, forgive me my debt. The boss forgives him. He goes to his peer, another uh, servant, and he says, give me the small amount you owe me. And the guy says, forgive me. And he won't give him the same forgiveness that he was given, and he starts beating him. The man then is taken back to the master, and the master says, wait a minute. I forgave you your debt. It was canceled. I remembered it no more. And the guy said, well, yeah. And he said, but I heard that you didn't take that on to the next person. What did he do? The man wasn't repentant, and so the master took back the forgiveness. 
That's the statement of Matthew 18. And we in the Christian circles have been tricked into this idea that it doesn't matter if I repent. People should just forgive me. We're entitled to forgiveness. No, you're not. When you reconcile with someone, there needs to be repentance and a remembrance, a lack of remembrance of the sin. Remember the sin no more. And this will take time. And this is what our relationship is to Jesus. We say, Jesus, I have rebelled against you. I repent in that rebellion. And as new sins arise against you, I will repent from those as well. And my whole life will be a constant turning of, of, uh, to you in repentance. This doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, gain our salvation, lose our salvation, but it's a relationship. Just like with my wife, there are certain sins I can never do again. I have a history of pornography. Repentance from me requires never again or she is allowed to remember my sin. Now, will I sin against Kelly in new and different ways? Yes, because I'm a jerk at heart, because I'm a human. But in those moments when she comes to me and says, Hans, the old man, the jerk is creeping out, I go back to a new cycle of repentance. And so as we grow as humans and as we grow as Christians, we're adding repentance to repentance to repentance to repentance, all the while bringing our relationships into reconciliation. And if I stumble in something, let's say I raise my voice at Kelly, and that's something that I have repented from a long time ago, that I would yell at my wife, and she says, wait a minute, something's going different here. I'm, I'm starting to remember something. She's offering me the chance to continue repenting or continue in rebellion. And I say, you're right, I've repented from that. I'm going to continue going. See, this is a totally different view than a lot of evangelical Christians have about what forgiveness is. If I'm to forgive, I should forgive and forget. No, that causes emotional scarring and it doesn't bring reconciliation. This process brings reconciliation. Because in this, sin is done away with and removed and hearts are brought back together. What this world needs is men and women who operate in a community governed not by false peace, but by true peace and reconciliation. A wholeness of reconciliation that models to those around us the heart of Jesus. As we look at the book of Isaiah, we are presented with an option just as they were. We can continue in the false peace of religion, thinking that we are good to go because we practice certain traditions. The false peace of the world the forgive-and-forget mentality where we shove everything under the rug in which we allow bitterness to grow and we lie to one another and attempt to maintain false peace. Or we can repent from that idea and operate in the truth, operate in peace and endeavor to bring shalom to the relationships in which we dwell. Honestly, vulnerably, going to one another when we've been harmed, reconciling with one another at every chance so that the world might know that we are his disciples by our love one for another. Our witness to the world depends upon our answer to this question that Isaiah presents. Which will will we decide to pursue? The false or the true peace? My prayer for us as Mission Fellowship and my prayer for you as students, whether you're part of our church body or not, is that we as believers would realize that it's not our words that draw people to Jesus. It is the heart of justice and reconciliation that we live that shows them the example of a wonderful, loving, amazing, gracious, forgiving God. So let us be those people to one another today 
And let us be those people as we go throughout this year on this campus, in Salem, Kaiser, and the surrounding areas. Let's pray this in.